Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. As we work, we earn money that we then bring home and spend some of it in ways that benefits the community in which we live. Can we do the same with our worship? Lead teacher Jeff Norris brings us this sermon entitled, Living as the Church in Our Cities, which covers Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 5 to 7, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, and Luke chapter 10, verse 2. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. All right, let me pray for us. We'll jump into our sermon this morning. Father, thank you so very much for who you are. Thank you that you meet us where we are. And we pray that you do that this morning. We just simply ask that Holy Spirit, you would come and move among us, softening our hearts, opening our ears, giving us eyes to see who you are and all of your beauty. Lord, help us to focus our mind's attention on you and may our heart's affection just overflow towards you. So we give this time to you for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. So our vision statement here, what we will say many times over and over, and you'll see just plastered in different places on our website, different things, says this. It says that we long to see individuals, families, greater Atlanta and the world come into a life-transforming encounter with the kingdom of God. Four key areas, individuals, families, greater Atlanta and the world come into a life-transforming encounter with the kingdom of God. Now, why wouldn't we say to come into a life-transforming encounter with Jesus? Well, because when Jesus showed up onto the scene, if you, realize, if you remember this, if you've read through the gospels, you might remember that when Jesus started his ministry, he kept saying something. And what he kept saying was some variation of the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe. And so what he made clear from the very beginning is that he was ushering in a kingdom. He was bringing to bear something that was unique to the world that he, the king, was bringing in. And he was not a king like anyone expected, right? The Jews were expecting a king. They were expecting a deliverer king, but they thought that would be a militaristic, political, governmental king that would come and rule and reign from that place. And they missed the reality of what the prophets had told many years before, time and time again, that when he comes, he will come as a suffering servant. And his kingdom will actually be a subversive kingdom, one that is about dying to self and being made new again. This is why when Nicodemus came to him in John chapter three and said, what is this thing that you're about? How do I follow you? How do I enter into the kingdom of God? And what did Jesus say? He said, well, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, very confused, asked the question, well, how do I enter a second time into my mother's womb? And he's thinking only in physical realities. And Jesus is trying to say to him, in the same way that man and woman was created in my image at the very beginning, I am here to reestablish the kingdom, to renew all things, and to remake you, to re-image you in my image. So when we talk about the kingdom of God and we talk about a life-transforming encounter with the kingdom of God, we're not just talking about what we're saved from, although that's beautiful and worthy of praise for all of, all of eternity. The reality that we're saved from sin and death and hell through the finished work of Jesus, yes, of course, amen. We will sing about that for all of eternity and appropriately so, but what are we saved into? We're saved into 
the kingdom of God. We're placed into a new reality. We're redeemed out of one kingdom into another kingdom. We're taking, uh, God is taking us out of all the various ways in which we are floundering and he's bringing us into a reality through King Jesus in his kingdom that we may flourish. Think back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 and 2. When God originally created all things, created man and woman, what did he do? He created man and woman in his image. And what that meant was that he was creating them to represent him and image him and show throughout the earth what God is like. Now, we often think of the image of God and we might think, uh, certainly I do, I've been guilty of this and maybe you're there too, where we, we only think like Nicodemus in physical realities. So we go, okay, I guess that means that you know, God has arms and legs and hands and feet and stuff like that. And so he kind of looks like me and we're just thinking about the physical reality. But we, we learn biblically that, well, it's not really that because God is a spirit. He's not a, not a human like we are. Now he came in human flesh as the son of God and Christ. But it's so much more than that. To image God means that we are imaging who he is. We're imaging his character, the nature of who God is, that in every way, as we walk the face of the earth, we are pointing people in what we say and in what we do and how we live and what we create and what we cultivate and how we care and how we love and all the various aspects that he made us, we are imaging him. That was the original design. Now, in that imaging of God, humans flourished and creation flourished. All of it was singing, if you will, the praise and the worth and the magnificence and the glory of God. Because that's who we were made for. And in that, everything was in order and everything was beautiful. And you know the story. Even if you're not churched, even if you haven't been in or around church, you, you kind of know there's this Adam and Eve thing going on. And they bought the lie. What was the lie of the serpent? The lie of the serpent was basically this. Don't eat of that fruit. God said don't eat of that fruit, but why? Because he said to not do it because you'll know good and evil. But really, the serpent said, you'll be, he knows that you'll be like him. So don't you want that fruit? And, and, and isn't that interesting, the nature of deception? Because what should have been Adam and Eve's answer to that? What do you mean? We're already like him. He, he made us in his image. We image him in every way perfectly. So what, what do you mean be like him? But they bought the lie. They bought the narrative that there's a better reality out there, that there's a better story, that there's a better story of glory. So they took the fruit and they ate it. And as soon as they ate it, flourishing died. It happened within us first. Our hearts just completely darkened marred by sin, tainted by sin, fractured in every way. But then through that, all of creation itself to where what used to be existing to the glory of God in such a way that we were the gatekeepers of it. We were the ones who created, who God created and we were to cultivate it. You remember what he told Adam and Eve before sin came into the world? The first commandment he gave them was he said, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. In other words, I've created this amazing beautiful reality, but I've created it in such a way that it's not as beautiful as it could be. So here's what I want you to do, Adam and Eve. I want you to reign over it to show the world what it looks like in my rule and reign. 
Cultivate it. Make it more beautiful. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with God worshipers, with image bearers. Once sin came into the world, creation and ourselves, all of it, we died. We became marred and ugly in so many ways, broken into a million pieces. And don't we feel that? Don't you feel that every single day? You sense it within you. You know, you know that darkness. You know that brokenness. You feel it every single day and you see it all around you. You see it in your homes. You see it in your own heart, in your relationship with your spouse, perhaps. You see it in your relationship with your kids. You feel the brokenness, but you see it in your neighborhoods. You see it in your communities. You see it in your workplace. You see it in your cities. You see that there are so many things that are wrong. They're just out of place. And so what is basically all of humanity doing ever since we all fell dead in the garden? What are we doing? We're scrapping like crazy to try to figure out how do we flourish again? How do we find meaning and purpose and value? And where, where does all of that come together? Is there a place where that reality can be true again? And when we begin to study the Bible and we begin to look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we begin to see a story that is profoundly amazing. We see a story that doesn't end in Genesis 3. In fact, God did not in any way panic when Adam and Eve blew it. He didn't panic. In fact, sin was just minutes old. He's pronouncing the proper and appropriate punishment upon sin because he's a God of justice and holiness, and so sin has to be punished, and so he's pronouncing the curse on Adam and Eve and the serpent. Do you remember what he said to the serpent? Sin is minutes old, Genesis 3.15, the first proclamation of the good news to come. It's subtle, but it's there. He, t- he says to the, servant, uh, to the serpent, he says, hey, by the way, there's, there's one coming from Eve, offspring. You're gonna strike his heel. You're gonna think you've really done some damage, i.e. the cross. But don't be mistaken. He's gonna crush your head. God's not panicking. Jesus wasn't plan B. He knew from the beginning that there was this redemptive work that he was going to do where he was going to take something that was once beautiful. It was going to be destroyed by us. And then he was going to put things in place that ultimately uh, rise to their greatest prominence on that hill called Calvary. And then through Jesus and his finished work and resurrection, he's going to say, okay, now all the ways in which flourishing used to be there, it's available to you again in, the, in, in Jesus and his kingdom to be remade again by faith in him, to be imaged again into the likeness of the very God who not only created you, but also saved you. The one who has redeemed you to the uttermost, who's brought you into his beloved kingdom. So flourishing, human flourishing, kingdom flourishing, It's the aim, it's the purpose, it's what we're chasing after. Yes, the vision is to see individuals, families, greater Atlanta and the world come into a life-transforming encounter with the kingdom of God, but why? To what end? So that the kingdom in us and through us may flourish. 
Here's how we define it. It's a little bit of a long definition, but I want, I'm gonna read it and I want you to follow along with me because it's really important to understand this. Kingdom flourishing is rooted in the Hebrew word shalom and the Greek word irene. These words are most often translated as peace in our English Bibles. Note that, remember that, I'm gonna come back to it. Most of the time we think of peace as being the absence of conflict. While it certainly is that, the words shalom and irene are much richer in meaning. These words not only signify peace, but wholeness, completeness, welfare, fullness, rest, and harmony. At Perimeter, the word that we use to encapsulate this biblical concept is the word flourishing. In Ephesians 2, 13 and 14a, the apostle Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. That's that Greek word, arene. The flourishing that we long for, the fullness of life for which we were originally created is found only in Jesus and his kingdom as we submit ourselves increasingly more to his benevolent rule and reign. We long to see the gospel go forth into our cities in such a way that people, neighborhoods, local schools, businesses, nonprofits, and civic institutions are increasingly experiencing the flourishing of the kingdom of God. That word, shalom, if you're reading your Old Testament, it's written in Hebrew originally, so the word was shalom. If you're reading your New Testament, written in Greek originally, so the words are reine. They are both really rich, full, deep words that the English language just has a really hard time conveying. And so rightfully, we, we translate it as peace, but over the years, peace in our language has become pretty minimal in definition. Typically, as it said in the definition, when we think of peace, we naturally tend to think one of two things, either absence of conflict or rest. Both of those are true, but there's so much more at play in these original ancient words. And really what God is saying when he's talking about shalom and this, and he talks about it a lot, what he's saying is he's saying wholeness, fullness, completeness, that not only are you and I, again, I want to keep reiterating this, not only through Jesus are you and I saved from what was uh, our slavery, what we were in tyranny under, not only are we saved from sin, but we're being redeemed back into the fullness of what we were made to be. And it doesn't just end with individual salvation. He's inviting us into a work that is renewing all things. This is what the apostle Paul said in Colossians 1. Talked about how he's renewing all things. And this is what Jesus said in Revelation 21. Behold, I am making all things new. Romans 8 says that all of creation groans for the day of redemption. Because it, through us, was subjected to the futility of sin. So in other words, when God's doing this redeeming work first and foremost in us through the finished work of Jesus, he's also doing a redeeming work through us that's not only bringing people into a relationship with him, which is glorious first and foremost, but he's doing a work that is redemptive holistically. This is what it looks like. When we talk about kingdom flourishing, we're talking about four key relationships. First one is this, first and foremost, it's with God. Jesus reconciles us to God through faith in him and his atoning sacrifice and resurrection, bringing peace, bringing shalom with God. What we've always longed to be true in terms of the, what we feel innately, that there has to be something more than just this life, 
We understand it to be, oh yeah, of course, there's a creator God and there's one who not only created us, but loves us. We're separated from him because of our sin and there's only one who rectifies and renews and redeems that and reconciles us and his name is Jesus. And God, now we flourish with him. Self, as the spirit of Christ transforms us as we place our faith in him, our right relationship with self comes into view as we holistically experience a reordering of desires and identity. We live in a world today and it's been this way from the beginning. We just see it more now because of all the various ways in which it's available to see it through uh, news and outlets and media and so forth. But we live in a world where everyone feels the deep brokenness of self. Everyone. Everyone's insecure. Not one of us in this room right now is not insecure. We all are. We all feel the deep brokenness of ourselves. We all wrestle with our emotions. Anxiety and depression is wreaking havoc on us and we all have an identity problem. Every single one of us. So part of what Jesus is doing as he's remaking us into his image is he's renewing us and it will never be fully renewed on this side of heaven, but we're getting bits and pieces and tastes of it now. And that plays into our identity issue that's deep within us as we begin to identify more and more with Jesus and his kingdom. Third, with others. The reconciling work of God through Christ is not only vertical with God, but also horizontal, breaking down walls of hostility and making enemies friends. Oh my goodness, is the world not crying out for this right now? I mean, not just right now, throughout the ages, but man, we are seeing it on full display. The brokenness of horizontal relationships, perhaps, at least in my lifetime, has never been more on display. I don't know, I don't know if you saw or heard uh, former President George W. Bush's speech yesterday that he gave in Pennsylvania, the site of where Flight 93 crashed. But one of the things he talked about is he said, we've gotten ourselves into this place where uh, a disagreement becomes a hatred, right? To where we just quickly move horizontally to you don't agree with me, well then be done with you. What, what would it look like if the kingdom of God, if we are coming into, if we are indeed coming into a life transforming encounter with the kingdom of God, what impact should that, would that, could that have in the way in which we relate to the world around us, according to the scriptures and in the implications of Jesus in us? If, if Christianity is indeed what the statistics say they are, which is the largest religion in the world, then why is the church struggling so bad in this area? And maybe it's perhaps because we've gotten incredibly comfortable with doing church, but we are not anywhere close to having a life-transforming encounter with the kingdom of God. Because it is so transforming in the way that we move out to those around us. The church should be leading the charge on this. We should be ones, the ones setting the tone on this. I mean, you go back to the early church. Listen to this quote from uh, the first century, uh, early second century uh, Roman emperor, Julian. The Roman emperor Julian, the apostate noted that Christians were remarkably benevolent to strangers. He said this, he said the impious Galileans, that's what he called Christians, the impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people, the Romans, 
lack aid from us. In other words, he's looking at the church and he's like, man, I don't agree with them. I don't believe what they believe, but look what they're doing. There's a transforming work happening through them in horizontal relationships because of the transforming work of the kingdom in them. I mean, it was the church in the first century who was going out into the fields to pick up and bring home the abandoned babies that were left behind by families that didn't want them because the Roman empire only valued babies that had zero issues. No deformities, no uh, nothing, no malnourishment, nothing along those lines. If they didn't like what they got when they had a baby, they threw it into the field and the church said, I want that baby. The church was always from the beginning to be a place of profound counterculturalism towards what it looks like to have a transforming encounter with the kingdom of God. The church was the place that in the early Roman emperor, when everything was still segregated and when there was still no idea from a religious standpoint that people should actually have the same access to God based on their background, ethnicity, race, whatever it may be. I mean, the Jews even, right, had so gone so far as to have all these different levels of entrance into the temple. There was a Gentile court and there was a Jewish court and it was all based on separation and ostracization. And then finally, the early church, through the finished work of Jesus and this transforming encounter with the kingdom of God, it was like all of a sudden you had all these people from all these nations coming together to worship together and the Romans didn't know what to do with that. The early church was not taking any cues from the culture. They were letting Jesus move within them in such a way that the kingdom of God was presenting a life transforming encounter towards flourishing the way God originally designed it to be. Lastly, the world, a right relationship with the world is all of creation groans for the day of redemption. We bring the flourishing of God's kingdom, not only to the people of the world, but to its places as well. Remember, it's a redemptive work that is holistic. It's not just individual salvation. That's where it starts, but it moves out in such a way that everything, everything that we touch, everything we create, everything that we do, our work, our play, all of it, the systems that we create, the structures that that come about from who we are, all of it is being transformed through the work of Jesus. Now listen, it's messy and it'll never be perfect because we're not in glory yet. Right? The, the fullness of the kingdom of, come, of God will not come until Jesus returns. We're only seeing it in part now, but we're seeing it in part increasingly so if the church is living out this kingdom mission. And so it's broken, it'll never be perfect, there'll all be, always be issues, we'll always be frustrated with the messiness of it. But the messiness doesn't necessitate not doing it. Let me just speak to our work. What you do, the work that you do matters. We have to be reminded all the time that work was pre-fall. In other words, God commanded Adam and Eve to work and to keep the garden long before sin came into the world. And the new heavens and the new earth, when he has made all things new fully and completely, will still work. We remember, we were made to image him. How do we image him? We create and we cultivate and we care. We make things beautiful. So you may be thinking, Jeff, I sit at a computer all day with spreadsheets. How is that making something beautiful? It is in a way that you probably don't see. It's bringing order to something that's not in order. That's of God. There is redemptive value in everything that we do. 
everything to bring the renewing work of God to bear everywhere we go. We've missed this a lot. This whole right relationship with the world is something that the evangelical Western church has missed for probably close to a couple of centuries. We've boiled it down to, in a, for, right, for right reasons, I understand the motivation behind it, was really the point of church is just to get people saved. And of course I agree with that. We all agree with that. Absolutely, it always starts with evangelism. Tell people about Jesus because that heart transformation has to happen first. But we just left it at that. To where a watching world who says, all you wanna do is convert me, but you don't care about me, says, I don't want anything to do with your church if all you wanna do is get me into heaven and then leave me here. Does God care about what I'm in right now? Or is it just, hey, believe in Jesus, hang out for a while, he'll come back or we'll die? No, no, he cares about every aspect of our lives and he wants to renew it all. He wants to bring about his kingdom flourishing. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not talking about prosperity gospel. They're still suffering. And God uses suffering in our lives. It's part of the brokenness that we continue to live in until he comes back. But there's a holistic nature, a fullness of work that God is doing. When we talk about kingdom of God work, we're talking about the fullness of his reordering, his rectifying, his renewing, his reconciling, and his redeeming at all levels, in all places, at all times. That's what makes the gospel really unbelievable, unfathomably good news. It would be plenty good enough if it were just individual salvation, but God doesn't stop there. He says, I want to renew it all. Now, I've given you a lot of scripture. I want to take you to one passage. He was trying to teach the Israelites this a long, long, long time ago. And they just wouldn't get it. I mean, we're studying, we're taking a one-week break from our study in Exodus. And we're already seeing in Exodus. I mean, the Israelites, they just, they just continue to be stubborn, hard-hearted. And we love to judge them and say, golly, how do they not get it? And then we see in our own hearts, oh man, I'm just the same. But he was trying to teach them long after the Exodus. They've gone into the promised land. They've, they've had incredible fruit and success as the kingdom of God, um, primarily under King David and King Solomon. Then after Solomon dies, the kingdom divides into two kingdoms. You have the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. And the Northern Kingdom was incredibly apostate. After Solomon died, no one walked with the Lord. None of the leaders walked with the Lord. They all started chasing idols. And God said, look, if you don't repent, you're gonna be destroyed. They didn't repent, he destroyed them. 722 BC, Assyria comes in. He wipes, uh, wipes them out with Assyria. The ones that survive, they're dispersed into all the nations, never to regather again. The southern tribes, two tribes of Judah that made the, the southern kingdom, they hung on for another 150 years. But then in 608 BC, after again, they wouldn't repent and they wouldn't turn from their idols. God said, okay, I warned you, here's Babylon. The Babylonians came in, wiped them out. And over the course of about 20 years, until 586 BC, they had three big deportations where they're taking all these Israelites out of Jerusalem into modern day Iraq, which is Babylon, to be ruled and reigned under a crazy king called Nebuchadnezzar. And can you imagine how defeated and discouraged the Israelites were? And you would think that human nature would certainly say that, okay, if we're in a foreign land, if we're now exiles in a foreign land, then... What do we do? We just huddle up and we hang on until we get out of here. Now, unfortunately, that's what the Israelites were doing. 
Maybe you're making the connection of how we've already talked about in our Exodus series that all of life is wilderness. We're exiles on this earth. First Peter in chapter one of First Peter, the apostle Peter says, you are sojourners and exiles on this earth. This is not your home. This is a foreign land to you, but how are you to live while you're there until you're brought into the new Jerusalem? What do we tend to do? We say, well, let's just gather in our little holy huddles and wait until he comes. And God is trying to teach the Israelites and he's trying to teach us. He said, no, 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 you're exiles, but this is how I want you to live while you're exiles. And so he tells them in Jeremiah uh, 29. Now, when you hear Jeremiah 29, if you've been in and around church, you immediately go, verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to give you a hope and a future, not to harm you. We love to plaster that one up and and, and appropriately so. It's It's not untrue. But we often forget the context. That was not an individual promise to every Christian in 2021. It was a promise to Israel. So if we're gonna apply it in modern day, we're not gonna apply it individually. Does God love you? Yes, more than you can ever imagine. But we apply it to the church. The church is the new Israel. So he told Israel, I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. By the way, that word prosper is shalom. To give you a hope and a future. So he tells the church, hey, by the way, you as a church, corporate, you're in exile. I have plans to prosper you. There will be a new Jerusalem. Hang on. But while you're hanging on, here's how you're to live in exile. And this is what he tells them. So go back to verse five. This is what he tells them. He says, while you're there, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there and do not decrease. Does that sound familiar? That's Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion over the earth. In other words, image me in that place. But seek the welfare. There's the word shalom. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, in its shalom, you will find your shalom. In other words, your shalom, your peace, your wholeness, your fullness of the kingdom of God in you is gonna be even more experienced as you take that shalom that's residing in you through Jesus to the city around you. And as that city experiences a life-transforming encounter with the kingdom of God, you will find even more deep wholeness and fullness as God uses you to bring shalom to where you live to bring the fullness, the wholeness of the kingdom of God. I love this quote from Stephen Gabriel. Listen to this. He says, living in exile doesn't fundamentally mean living simply, being organic, living counterculturally, being radical or abandoning suburbia for city living. At its core, it means living missionally and intentionally in light of God's economy of all things. The heart of this missional perspective is perhaps articulated clearest in the letter to Diognetus, second century, where the author employs a sticky analogy that encapsulates the essence of an in but not of theology of culture. Namely, as the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. The soul, the author writes, is dispersed through all the members of the body and Christians are scattered through all the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body but does not belong to the body. And Christians dwell in the world but do not belong to the world. Some of you have heard many times over the years, if You've been in or around church that we are to be in the world, but not of it. So what does that look like to be an exile who doesn't wholly huddle life, 
but who actually moves out into the places, build houses, give your sons and daughters in marriage, cultivate, create, care, bring the kingdom of God. So here's three important questions. As we think about this, we think about city impact. What does it look like for us to live this out in the places where we live? Here's three questions that are helpful to answer. The first one is how? How are we to live this out in our cities? And I just wanna point you quickly to where I think Jesus gives us a clue here. In the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he first starts his long sermon, the longest sermon that we have recorded of him, he says this, he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Now that's that word. The peace part of that word is arene. So here's why that's important. What he's saying is, we, maybe you've read that verse before and you go, okay, blessed are the peacemakers. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean I just go around all the time breaking up fights? Like, like peacemaker, what does that mean? Like, well, now that we understand the wholeness of that word, the fullness of that word and how it's pointing toward flourishing, human flourishing, kingdom flourishing, then what does that mean? It means what Jesus is saying here is he's saying we, everywhere we go and everything that we do, we are shalom doers. We are shalom pursuers. We're intentional. We are so intentional everywhere we go with how we live and what we say and what we do. Where, where are we to primarily live this out? Well, listen, it starts simple because Jesus always started there, which is our homes and our neighborhoods. Sometimes we think if, if we throw something out like City Impact, our natural tendency is to go big. Okay, that means I guess in my city, I gotta be a part of putting on some huge event that draws a lot of people. We gotta get a great speaker in and we gotta start doing huge service projects and so forth. And it might mean that at, at different times with your city and the way City Impact goes about in your city. 99% of it is everyday living. How are you seeking to bring the kingdom of God the flourishing of God's kingdom where you are in your home and in your neighborhood? How are you seeing those around you? Jesus said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus is not necessarily saying your geographic neighbor, the one right next to you. But he's just saying, as you go about life, the people you are with and around and the ones you come in contact with, how are you gonna love them? How are you gonna bring the flourishing of God's kingdom to bear in their lives? I'll tell you what that's gonna require. At some level, that's gonna require a, re, uh, a reestablishment of front door sitting, right? We tend to live in realities now where we pull our cars in the garage, we close the garage as fast as we can because we don't wanna talk to our neighbors. <laughs> We just, we're just like, man, I just don't have, a, I don't have margin for that. I get it. I understand. We wrestle, Rachel and I wrestle with the same thing. So what would it look like to actually shift? I don't, we don't really have a front porch, but what would front porch living look like for us? To where we're actually engaging more with those around us and seeking to bring the flourishing of God's kingdom. What do we start with? In other words, let's say you're front porch sitting and a neighbor comes by, he's like, how do I even begin to go there? What does it look like to begin to move the kingdom of God into those lives around me and the spaces around me? Watch this video, it might help a little bit with that. 
Each of us leads such busy lives. We can get so caught up in the daily grind. There are moments when we wonder, is this all life has to offer? Is this all God wants for me? Have you ever considered that those nagging thoughts are really moments of holy discontentment, a prompting of the Spirit to reevaluate how we go about our routines? What if that holy nudge is God inviting us to reframe our everyday choices as kingdom choices? Intentional decisions that bring the flourishing of God's kingdom to the places we live. This big idea is City Impact. City Impact isn't a new ministry. It's a way of living. Living as the church in our cities, just as God intended us to do. For nearly half a century, Perimeter has been a church on the move. And today, the places around us are too. As the areas around our church evolve into thriving city centers, now is the time to reimagine what it means to impact our homes, neighborhoods, communities, and cities. Through small actions and intentional choices, we can bring the flourishing of God's kingdom to the people and places around us. When we heed that feeling of holy discontentment, we can see God moving us towards gracious engagement with those in our immediate circles. That engagement is what creates City Impact. It all starts with radical dependence founded on prayer, fueled by intentional everyday actions to worship, belong, grow, and bless in our homes, neighborhoods, communities, and cities. So if you've been around Perimeter for any length of time, you know, again, this is not anything new. We've always wanted to trust God to bring his kingdom to bear where we live. What City Impact is, is simply just a, a little bit of, an, of a focused initiative to say, how can we help ourselves? How can we help each other lock arms in those places where we live? To have a team that exists together in our city, in a city where you are, that gets this, that is passionate about God's kingdom coming, and to begin to have tracks to run on, to where it's not just, all right, go reach your city, but it's like, here's some, here's some steps that you can take, and here's some people to be with as you do that. And so that's what these, uh, as you, if you're here in person, as you go out today, you're gonna see the different cities represented in the atrium. Stop by there and ask, hey, what's going on in my city? Some of those that you stop by are gonna be in more in a building phase. And they're gonna say, hey, all we, all we really have right now, but we really need you to engage with us on this is we're just gathering people to pray once a week. And there's a part of you maybe perhaps that just heard that and went, okay, well, come back to me when you got something to do. But do you remember where Jesus started? Before he sent the 70 out, you remember what he said? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he will send out workers into his harvest field. He started with prayer. We gotta start there too. And that is a huge work. And so if your city is just in that building phase and your city leaders are just going that you'll meet out here or just saying, hey, you know what? Right now, we're just gonna gather on whatever night, whatever, whatever morning and pray. Would you join us? Would you please say yes to that? Yes, I will be there to pray because that's where it starts. That's where the work starts. Some of these other cities, you're gonna go out and they're gonna have more things. You're gonna say, hey, we got five things. We got prayer, we got this, we got this, we got this. And you go, okay, great. And you begin to engage with that. But as it pertains to those conversations and where do you start individually, let me give you three other things. One is prayer, radical dependence. You gotta start there. Second though, GBI. 
Not Jura, don't call Georgia Bureau of Investigation. <laughs> GBI is greet. That's our little language that we use for greet, befriend, invite. Everywhere you go, have that posture about you. Greet, befriend, invite. Invite to what? Certainly church, yes, but invite to what's going on in your city. Maybe there's a concert in your city. It has nothing to do with perimeter. Say, you want to go to that together? You start building relationships that way. Maybe it is something more city impact related. And you say, hey, we're having this gathering at my house or at Joe's house or whatever. Would you come? Greet, befriend, invite. Third, spiritual multiplication. Everything that we do here is around the mission of spiritual multiplication, which is telling people about Jesus, helping them walk with him and helping them become a disciple of Christ who then makes disciples. So evangelism, discipleship. Lastly, love where you live. Some of us have a hard time jumping into this initiative because we simply don't love where we live. We just don't. And so maybe the prayer for you is to start with, God, would you give me a heart for where I live? For the people that live there, that you soften my heart, that I would long to be engaged in your work here. So what we're talking about is Sundays, we're the church gathered but we're talking about this city impact thing is about the church scattered. How do we live as the church in our cities? There's five cities, just so you know, as you go out, there's five cities that are active. They're gonna have numerous opportunities for you as you engage with them. Those five cities are Johns Creek, Peachtree Corner, South Forsyth, Duluth, and Berkeley Lake. There's four cities that are more in that building stage. Those are Norcross, Roswell, Swanee, Slash Sugar Hill, and Alpharetta Milton. There's some other cities, and the last thing we'll say here is there's some other cities that are more what we might call in that, in that realm of just greater Atlanta, where we don't really have anything. Well, there's not even a prayer movement going yet, but we would love to get that prayer movement going and move towards that. And so if you live, I mean, some of those cities are Dunwoody, Buford, Lawrenceville, Sandy Springs, Brookhaven, Atlanta, the city of Atlanta, and, and maybe perhaps a, a few others. There's a booth out there. There's an area for that, for greater Atlanta. Go visit that if you, if you wanna be engaged with how we can begin to build in those cities also. Uh, I'm excited about where God's leading in this. Uh, here's what I want you to do. It's 11.58. I don't want us to not finish singing, okay? So if you'll be gracious enough, I packed in so much into the sermon. I'm never guilty of that, right? I, I never try to do too much to where I go over time. I've never done that before. I'm being sarcastic. Um, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out, as you go out and check out those things, pick up a City Impact playbook. This is a really good thing. They're all available out there. This is a really good thing that kind of summarizes, encapsulates what we're, what we're trusting God for here. Grab a t-shirt. I'd love for you to wear your t-shirt. Wear your t-shirt tonight if you're coming back for, uh, for the night of worship. But grab a t-shirt, grab a book, stop by your booth for your city, and we'll trust God for big things, okay? So we'll go a little bit over time because I want us to sing our way out of here. All right, let's do that. Father, thanks. Thanks for who you are, for all the ways in which you are at work and the ways in which you are bringing, even when we don't see it, you are bringing your kingdom to bear in us and through us. You are bringing about kingdom flourishing. So may we be a people who just align with you in that because you're doing it. And so Father, move and work among us, in us, use us, and as always, not just as a throwaway statement, Lord, but because we deeply long for it, would you do it for your glory, that you would be glorified among the nations, that you would be glorified in all the earth. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together.
you've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.